Thank you, everybody. Uh, it's so nice to see you all here and to get a sense of all the different places that you're from. And thank you, Liz, for that introduction. It's really nice to have that connection and that memory of those retreats. Um, gosh, you know, I still sometimes have this feeling of kind of magic. I'm just here in our spare room here in Nottingham, and it's just so lovely to be able to see you all and connect in this way and i just really appreciate it and i'm very happy that the omc uh invited me to do this um and so what we're gonna do today we'll have a, a fairly short practice uh, we'll practice for around uh, 10 minutes or so and then i'll um give a talk and reflecting on the new year and in particular the theme of why we practice which i find fascinating actually and something to revisit again and again uh, quite a live um exploration for me really you know what brings us to this practice and what sustains us in in doing it over the years and decades if we continue um and then there'll be some time for some questions that will come after that so that's the the plan for today um so yeah let's begin with our practice so um, as much as is possible where you are, uh, finding a posture that's supportive. And uh, I know from what Liz was telling me, many of you are very uh, experienced in the practice, but just a reminder that yeah, we're exploring a posture where there's a sense of being upright, a sense of being at ease. We can begin this period of practice by yeah, hearing the sound of the bell. So as we begin today, taking time to notice how things are for you as we arrive in this meeting, aware of the thoughts and the feelings that are here as we begin. Maybe you're arriving and things feel quite smooth and easy, or maybe you're arriving with quite a lot on your mind. And remembering that for all of us, these different states, they come and they go. And as much as feels possible in this moment, simply letting these thoughts be, noticing, aware, letting be. And to support that sense of letting be, we can allow the attention to begin to come into the body. So allowing the attention to move down into the legs, down into the feet. Feeling and sensing the connection with the ground. So how does that feel right now? In this moment? Maybe a sense of the feet on the 
ground or the legs on the ground. As much as feels possible, bringing a sense of freshness to that in this moment. Maybe noticing some tingling, numbness, twinges, pressure, temperature. Seeing how it is to bring the attention all the way down to that contact with the ground. When you notice or whenever you notice the attention drawn away into thoughts and stories and the things on your mind. Again, remembering that helpful reflection. This is just what our minds do. It's okay. It's okay. Noticing that tendency for the attention to be drawn into the thoughts and stories. Gently letting go of those and shifting to the sense of the body, to the legs, the feet, to the ground beneath you. And now we can let that sense of contact with the ground just be there in the background of awareness. And in the foreground, really sensing the seat. That sense of really taking our seat here and now. Feeling the body on the chair. Or on the cushion. And the sense of really taking our seat here and now. So we may sense that physically and perhaps also open to the symbolic sense of taking our seat, the seat of awareness in the midst of it all. Feeling and sensing that contact. And then allowing the sense of ground and seat just to be there in the background of awareness. And allowing the attention to begin to rest on the breathing. To feel the in-breath, feel the out-breath, perhaps in the belly. Maybe in the chest area. Letting the attention just rest with the breath as it comes and goes. And so knowing that in the middle of whatever thoughts and feelings come, 
there's this place to come home to, to come back to. To sense the breath as it comes and goes. Breathing in the midst of whatever's here. Gently coming back to the breath in the body, the in-breath and the out-breath. And as much as feels possible, being really patient, when the mind wanders away, we simply return. And then as we come towards the end of this period of practice, allowing the attention to widen around the breath and opening to a sense of the whole of the body, from the toes to the very top of the head, present with the whole body here and now. Nothing to fix or change or get right. Just this sense of awareness from toes to the top of the head. Whole body present. And as much as feels possible, allowing this sense of presence to continue and to flow through into our time together today.
So, as I mentioned, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you in this first uh, keynote of 2022 and to have an opportunity to yeah, reflect on um, why we practice uh, as we begin the year. Um, and a very touched with Liz's introduction and also just to share with you, I think uh, when I speak to an audience um, like yourselves, I'm so aware of all of the different professional disciplines and academic fields that people come from. And for me, this is one of the things that's very beautiful about this field, actually, the sense of collaboration uh, from people with, you know, different intellectual and academic and all kinds of backgrounds actually coming together to explore this practice. Um, but there's also that brings for me a little bit of a sense of being daunted by knowing that some of you know some of these areas and feel so much better than me but uh, we can all offer our own uh, part of this and so what i really wanted to do is offer some quite personal reflections on um why i practice or why we practice um, and in my understanding, uh, this is something that it's well worth revisiting again and again. And in the, gosh, it's now about 27 years since, I, you know, you get used to saying I've been practicing for 25 years or 20 years, whatever it is. Now I'm realizing it's 27. Uh, and I remember very well, actually, because it was a, a kind of New Year's resolution for me to uh, explore some yoga and then yoga led me to meditation uh, all those years ago when I was at, at university. Um, but in those years of practice, 27 years of engaging uh, in one way or another with mindfulness practices, my motivation has actually changed actually, or my sense of the goals of the practice or why I've practiced, it's been quite fluid. And I think this is quite common. Uh, as we practice a long time, there may be one particular thing that brings us to it. Um, you know, I might want to feel less stressed or um, might want to uh, be able to heal um, the anxiety that feels debilitating, for instance. These are very uh, common things that can bring us to practice. And yet, as we practice, um, those very motivations can change. <laughs> um, I remember in quite often when I've taught eight week courses, so people come and they kind of say, I want you to tell me how to get rid of my anxious thoughts. And there's this thing that can be a little bit awkward as I said, well, maybe we're not going to do that, but we might be able to learn to be with them in a different way. <laughs> and they're like, oh, <laughs> Uh, I'm not quite sure if that's what I, I want, but you can see sometimes over the course of an eight week course that the, the idea of what we're trying to do can change from, you know, we're trying to get rid of our anxious thoughts or uh, never feel sad or uh, feel buoyant all the time or some kind of idea like that. Um, and actually there can be a shift, you know, for instance, to feeling more at ease within whatever thoughts and feelings and moods come and go. Um, but I was remembering, uh, for me, why I began, or one of the reasons why I began, was to do with a sense of wonder, to do with a sense of wonder. And I remember, um, well, really, before I definitely before I'd heard the word 
mindfulness that I came across a book uh, called Zen Buddhism and Psychoanalysis by uh, Eric Fromm and D.T. Uh, Suzuki. Uh, so I'm very lucky that in my my dad's got one of these houses where there are lots of sort of wonderful books uh, lying around and I picked up this book and I was really drawn to it and one of the things it described was um, this I think it was it was actually a kind of poem or teaching about an experience of walking down the street and seeing a flower blooming by the side of the road and really being um, just so taken by this that there was a kind of stopping. Um, we might say, you know, a stopping of just kind of the background worry or the stopping of going around something that perhaps is not that important in the big scheme of things and actually being struck with a moment of beauty. And there was a, a word in uh, Japanese, uh, apologies, I can't remember the, the word, but the, there wasn't a direct translation in English for, but it was the nearest we might have to it is something like, wow, <laughs> wow. Um, and, you know, we can have these experiences. And, and I read this book and I thought, OK, I'm going to go and try this out. So I sort of walked around the streets in North London for a little bit. And I you know, came across this tree and I had this experience. Wow. <laughs> you know, just the beauty of this uh, tree. Um, and it really it struck me, I don't think, you know, although I was in my, my 20s by then, I, I don't think I'd ever looked at a tree quite like that. I was really taking it in. It was no longer just part of the sort of taken for granted background of life, but it was like, isn't this extraordinary to be able to experience this? Um, anyway, I was so taken by this. Of course, then over the next few days, I thought, oh, I'm going to try and do this again. So I kind of went back to the tree and it was going, come on, wow, again. And of course, if you've practiced a while, you may well notice that this kind of thing doesn't work, really. Um, and we may say in mindfulness uh, language, we'd shifted from a real genuine beginner's mind, yeah, where that experience was fresh to almost coming to that experience with the tree for an agenda. It was like turning up saying, oh, give me that good feeling you gave me the other day, uh, which of course doesn't uh, work quite so well. Um, but this experience of wonder, I mean, I've related it to this idea of beginner's mind, I think for me is, is a very beautiful aspect of why we may practice. It's so easy, isn't it, to sort of go through life with a sense of a a deadening routine, here we are again doing the same thing. Uh, you know, life can begin to feel, you know, maybe somewhat grey. Um, and then there can be these moments of just, well, like it's extraordinary to be here at all, if that makes sense. Um, the philosopher Wittgenstein said, it's not how the world is mystical, that that it exists. And what he means by that is just sometimes you can have these extraordinary moments of, wow, isn't it just incredible to be alive? Um, times when we might have felt like this, again, when you look at the stars at night, you know, and you look at the stars at night and you see all these uh, stars in the sky and it helps us to hold our own preoccupations in a different perspective. Again, many of you may know this much more than me, but I've just been kind of trying to learn a little bit about all of this and learning that there are an estimated 100 billion stars in our uh, galaxy 
alone. And then there are billions of galaxies. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, to me, this is like a kind of another wow experience. It's like um, a sort of unfathomable vastness of the universe. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel my life is a sort of movement between those times when I remember that and I can feel in touch with the beauty and wonder of life. And then there's a sort of closing down in the mind and my perceptions and thoughts and preoccupations and worries become much more narrow. Um, and over the years, I'm kind of okay with that really. Again, it might've been one of my earlier aspirations. I'm gonna stay in this kind of state of wonder the whole time. I, it seems to me that we do move um, you know, between them, between more narrow and more wide focus. But that's at least one aspect of why we might practice to, you know, retain that sense of wonder. Um, I saw some children playing once in an airport. Their adults were, from the adult perception of what's happening was that the plane was delayed and we all had to queue up. So because we were all working on that level, we were of course all getting quite kind of tense and hot and wondering what was going on. But I remember just looking at these children and they were just playing and laughing and running along and they didn't have that sense of the plane being late. It was a very different feeling. Um, and that childlike sense of kind of wonder and delight, I think is something mindfulness can um, yeah, remind us of. This is quite often the experience, isn't it? When we eat a raisin in that way, very interesting. Our courses so often start with eating a raisin and there's that experience, isn't there, of experiencing this thing in a new way. What was taken for granted becomes something worthy of really giving our care and attention to. And we see how giving our care and attention transforms our experience. So this is uh, for me part of why we might practice. By the way, none of these are exhaustive. The idea of this is a kind of open-ended reflection on why we might practice. Um, another thing I've been thinking of uh, a lot is um, actually this book here that many of you may know, and if you can see that, uh, Active Hope by Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston. Um, and they're talking uh, really about how meditation practice can support us in finding wise responses to the huge challenges that we face collectively. In particular, they're thinking of the um, climate crisis. Um, and you know, for me, I'm just beginning to explore their work. And I'm sure many of you, again, may, may know their work much better than me. But what struck me about just my beginning explorations of this is the idea of looking at the stories we live by. The stories we live by. And um, they describe three stories we might have at the moment. And one story they describe as business as usual, which would be the story that kind of says, everything's fine, there's nothing really to worry about, you know, the planet will sort itself out, you know, there's really not too much to be concerned about, we can just get on with our lives as we used to live. The second story is described as one of um, despair. You know, quite a shift from that business as usual when people can begin to learn more about um, 
yeah, what's happening to our earth or get a sense of the scale of the challenges ahead uh, for us, that there can be this sense of despair and shutting down. Um, but they also describe a third story. And the third story can be called the great turning, which is to begin to see um, our lives as something that can contribute uh, our own small part of a collective sense of finding something new, finding new and wise responses to our collective situation, our own little part of whatever that might be. And for me, that's again a very beautiful sense of how mindfulness could support us to do that, actually, to stand back from the thoughts and assumptions and beliefs that so often can habitually drive our behavior, to look at things, including really painful and difficult things, to really be aware of uh, our collective challenges. But that not to be a sort of endpoint of despair, but we can move on and find wise and kind responses as best we can. I mean, for me, this is an extraordinarily um, inspiring and motivating vision that they're offering in that way. So mindfulness can really support a sense of wonder. Mindfulness can support us to um, yeah, wisely respond to the huge challenges that we face collectively. And again, I'm mentioning this, it seems to me this is very much in our collective uh, awareness at the moment. One of the biggest films over the Christmas time was this film, Don't Look Up. I don't know if you've seen that, but that sense of, um, yeah, there are things uh, happening in our world and how do we find uh, ways to to respond to that it's like it's kind of in the in the zeitgeist i guess we would say but you know for me over 27 years there are so many different reasons also to practice and another one that has always spoken to me is a sense of increased flexibility increased flexibility and I really like the um, article by Shapiro and others on the mechanisms of mindfulness. Um, and one of the things they say is that mindfulness gives us the capacity to uh, stand back from our experience, sometimes called a, a de-centering. So that rather than being driven by habitual patterns and thoughts and moods and emotions, we can, um, we can witness those. And there's some increased choice there. And so they talk about mindfulness then from this leading to more cognitive, emotional and behavioral flexibility. We can think more flexibly. We're not so stuck in uh, narrow ways of perceiving things. And that affects how we feel and gives us greater choices about how we behave. Now, this is a big thing. <laughs> this is a huge thing. And I've often thought about this in relation to um, a story I came across in a psychology textbook. It was actually a, an illustration of um, what was called the, uh, the uh, neur neuroticism, sorry, neurotic, neurotic uh, personality trait. Um, but the story 
really was of a person who arranged to see her friend for lunch and they'd arranged the lunch date, but the friend um, didn't come. So you can imagine this situation. She's waiting there for lunch and she's looking forward to seeing the friend. And then over time, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, she's thinking, well, where, where is she? What's going on? Um, and, you know, time goes on and I, I would say, you know, understandably, she becomes quite upset and hurt and angry about this. Um, but then when she speaks to her friend, her friend says, look, I'm so sorry. I've had so much going on at work and I was just so overwhelmed and I completely forgot. I really value our time together. Um, can we make another time? But this person and, you know, to me, I find this very poignant and moving. was so locked into a particular way of perceiving it that she wasn't able to hear her friends or accept her friend's apology. She was more, no, that's totally disrespectful. That was completely rude. You know, how dare you treat me like that? I don't want anything more to do with you. And then the story goes on that, you know, this this friend really wants to keep going. So after a few days and a week, when she's uh, given the other person a chance to cool down, she tries again. You know, I'm really sorry. Let's, you know, let's not let this misunderstanding, you know, ruin the friendship and gets the same kind of response. No, you've disrespected me. I don't want to have anyone, anything to do with anyone's like that. And yeah, as I mentioned, I find this very moving. And because if you think about if we were to habitually react like that, day in, day out, week in, week out, month by month, it really impairs our capacity to make and sustain relationships, um, you know, our family relationships, our friendships, it would affect our capacity to uh, work effectively if we dealt with difficulty in that very fixed way all the time. So cognitive, emotional and behavioral flexibility is a huge deal for our capacity to really, um, well, live, live happy and um, fulfilled lives. Um, and I also find it moving, by the way, um, because I also can recognize myself in the woman who responded like that. So for me, this is not oh, some other category of people who have these inflexible thoughts. But, um, you know, if I'm being honest, that's me, um, you know, on on a bad day, we might say, if I'm very tired or feeling more stressed, those are the states of mind I'm much more likely to be in. But I notice with mindfulness, it is possible to catch ourselves in that. Oh, I'm doing that again. <laughs> or, ah, oh, there's, you know, maybe I'm, I'm seeing this a bit narrowly. Maybe there's a possibility to see it in another way. So in the Buddhist psychology, this would be called, um, you know, mindfulness of, of states of mind. Uh, we become aware of our mood rather than governed by it. And it's liberating, right? It's freeing. You know, that move from, oh, my friend has let me down and, uh, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. This is the only way to perceive it. We start to see, <laughs> as we always say, that thoughts are not facts. You know, the realization that thoughts are not facts frees us to behave differently. And then we might say to our friend, yeah, I was really upset. 
And interestingly, I think we might still say that. We wouldn't say, no, it's fine, you know, uh, you know, turn on whenever you want. I was upset. I felt embarrassed and I really wanted to see you and I had a lot to say. But yeah, let's meet up again. And, you know, day in, day out, the capacity to do that makes a huge difference, a huge difference to our life. Mm. So this really is related to, um, you know, another reason we might practice mindfulness. Um, we might describe it as letting go of the secondary suffering. And uh, that example I gave you is kind of one part of that. But when we think about our lives, and again, as you, you may have heard this many times before, a very fundamental sense of mindfulness practice we realize that there are pains that are an inevitable part of being human you know just the fact of having a body fact of having nervous systems being mortal i sometimes sum this up as being mortal beings in an unpredictable world you know that's that's our condition <laughs> and living in that condition means we experience pains and disappointments and losses and all kinds of things that are hard to bear. And there is this thing that we might call secondary suffering, which is when we make more out of that, it uh, grows and snowballs and proliferates into a greater mental and emotional suffering. And for me, again, this is a huge reason to practice mindfulness, little by little to let go of that secondary suffering to turn towards more the inevitable pains of life but to be able to hold those in a different way and again i as you may have learned now i like these everyday examples and one that came to to mind uh, about this was you know imagine you're cooking a meal I and mean, we've just had the holiday period maybe many of us have, have been cooking a meal for family and it felt very important that it went it went well yeah it can quite often be the case can't it and you're preparing this meal and then um again uh, imagine you have an electric oven and halfway through the preparation there's a power cut yeah it's very helpful reflection to think well what happens in those kind of situations and so we might imagine what the secondary suffering would be um you know the the cognitions would come in where you know we're sort of the maladaptive um forms of thinking you know this is this is a nightmare this is a disaster and if we think about what um beck would say if uh, you know we had a particular vulnerability to um, uh, depression, that those kind of situations when uh, unfortunate things happen, disappointing things happen, they can trigger these un this underlying sense, can't it? You know, I'm no good. Why do these things happen to me? And not just that, why do these things always happen to me? You know, these kind of thoughts come in, don't they? Um, uh, what are my family going to think about me? Nothing's ever going to turn out for, for me. Um, so 
uh, the, the, through patterns of um, habitual and unhelpful thinking, we can turn a, a difficult experience into something that feels overwhelmingly painful and triggers globalized thoughts about ourself, about the whole world, about how the future is going to be. And in mindfulness, again, gosh, this is, I mean, as I'm saying it to me, I'm really feeling the inspiration to doing it, that we can learn, you know, I was going to say not to do that, or at least to do that less. We can learn to see when that's happening and begin to put that down. And then it's just a power cut. <laughs> It's just a power cut. It's inconvenient. It's, you know, it's annoying. It's disappointing. But we might even have the perspective. And if we manage to get outside and look at the stars and remember the 100 billion of them in our galaxy, we might even begin to have the perspective, oh, this will be a good story tomorrow or in a week's time. It might be a bit early for it to be a good story. You never guess what's happened. And then our mind could be in a more creative place. You know, what do we do? from here? Do we phone around some neighbors? Do we go somewhere else where there might be some food? Do we, you know, find somewhere where there's a gas cooker? Do we, you know, all kinds of things, but our minds become creative. We start to see possibilities. And yeah, hopefully there's not a power cut that affects a family meal every day, but there are challenging events, aren't there? every day for all of us. This is why we fill in the unpleasant event calendar in NBCT because, you know, they come for all of us. But to really, you know, learn how we can, you know, be with these disappointments and losses, we may even say with more grace, with more ease, with more freedom, with more flexibility. Um, well, it, it has a huge difference, yeah huge difference on our our life and the huge difference on the lives of those around us so i shall pause there i shall pause there but yeah hopefully as this new year begins um you know these just a few reflections on why we might practice are useful and supportive for you as i mentioned before i don't mean them to be exhaustive you know, you may have your own ideas that are very different from this, or there may be, you know, some similarity. But just to bring them to mind is very helpful. You know, our practice is like something that needs some nurturing, uh, particularly if we do it over over years and longer, you know, that, that actually to think, well, why do I do this? And that can bring energy, enthusiasm, motivation, to really give ourselves to this. Um, it's a beautiful thing to do. So, yeah, let's take just a, just a moment to be still, to absorb some of the things I've said. And it would be lovely now just to see if there's any um, questions that might appear in the chat or, or comments that you have. Um, yeah, it'd be lovely to hear a little bit. We, we have perhaps a, around 10 minutes or so. So 
Um, but if there's something that I said that you would like to ask about or comment on, then really feel free to do that. And you can type it in the chat and uh, I'll respond. Thank you. Is it, I, don't, I don't know if it's Jar or uh, Yar, but thank you. What a great story. Thank you. Hmm. Ah, thank you. Yeah, Susan says, what's the main thing that keeps you practicing? Um, hmm. I mean, actually, interestingly for me, I think this feeling of continuing to think about why is a really important part of my practice, actually, and to realize that that can be quite an open-ended question. Um, and so sometimes my practice can be more about how I can respond more wisely to interpersonal situations like the ones I've described. But I'm also really interested. That's why I mentioned this book. Um, yeah, actually, people saying and it can be something that really has some significance for our collective challenges. I find that really helpful. Um, so to keep asking why <laughs> uh, is actually in itself motivating. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Have you ever had any periods of serious doubt about it? Um, yes, I'm not quite sure about the serious doubt, but definitely doubt. I mean, I, I you know, 27, <laughs> I don't want to sound too strange. 27 years is a long term relationship, right? <laughs> it's a little bit like, you know, a relationship that we might have uh, with a partner. And of course, as we probably know, you know, you have the honeymoon stage and then with the stage when you, you know, some of your initial hopes, uh, uh, you know, are not, not quite there. And then you sort of think, well, how, are, how am I with this over the longer period of time? Um, I think if I'm being really, you know, transparent about it, I think when I started, I had some, what I would see now as some quite naive ideals of just, oh, if I just do this for a few years, you know, I'm going to sort of sail through life effortlessly. You know? <laughs> um, there's a, a, a Zen teacher called Barry Majid who calls this a curative fantasy, you know, some sort of secret idea of how I'm going to get to a place where everything's smooth. Uh, so I don't really expect everything to be smooth these days. Uh, so that's a shift of motivation more to be with that. But yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, it has motivation goes up and down. I think that's part of it. And uh, many people describe that. Gosh, so many questions. Ooh. <laughs> and firstly, I, well, I can see so many coming in. I just firstly apologize to all of you that uh, I won't be able to respond to all of these. Um, gosh, wow, and they're really, really wonderful. Uh, I'm going to take this one. Do you find that your practice has become easier? How do you deal with experiencing boredom during the practice? I mean, yes, it has become easier, actually. I think that's a really nice thing to know, and particularly when we're, uh, we're new. Um, I, th I think there's a feeling of things feeling more workable, things feeling more workable, you know, as we practice over time. Um, yeah, not 
being quite so thrown around by different things that come and go. Um, so, you know, the, the person also mentions boredom. Um, this, <laughs> this is the paradox. The most effective way to respond to boredom is to get interested in it, <laughs> which is kind of hard. But to sort of think, how, what, is, what is going on when we feel bored, if we can um, have that? Um, and the view that helps me with boredom is to really see it as a state of mind. One of my favorite experiences, and somebody else mentions retreat, so here's a, a link with that question, was um, doing a long retreat. And my job at the time was to um, uh, sort of put away the, the waste food. But I, my, I was doing so much practice at the time, the sort of feeling of moment to moment awareness was quite strong. And I was putting away this food that was, um, you know, didn't smell very nice, <laughs> but I just didn't want to be anywhere else at that moment. And I was so struck by that. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is fine. This is all right. It's, yeah, it's an unpleasant smell. Um, but just to, to be there with that uh, really feeling present meant that, you know, previously would have been seen as an unpleasant experience wasn't, wasn't there in that way. So to see boredom is not in the, not in the object. You know, we when we have that view, so we're not bored because nothing's going on. We're bored to see it as a state of mind. It then becomes something that's that's workable. Um, it can be can be really interesting. Um, and also, by the way, it also comes and goes. Yeah, where nobody's bored forever. <laughs> so you also do that on retreat. You're bored for a bit, and then something else happens. Um, yeah, so retreats that do, uh, I have found retreats very helpful. Um, and it's been very helpful to really dedicate time to doing that. At this stage of my life and where we are collectively, I'm also fascinated with home retreats um, and think that there are really interesting things we learn from doing that. Um, there can be a, a time of going away on retreat and the conditions are so supportive that we settle more into our practice and then it can be challenging. How do we come back and how do we live this in our um, everyday lives? And home retreat where we're at home <laughs> uh, and but being at home in a different way, I think can be very, very integrating. Um, and I'm really fascinated, by the way, both in MBCT and in MBSR, the, the way of teaching that right from the start, we're integrating the practice with, uh, with what we do at home and our everyday life. I think that can be really skillful. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I see these actually as different forms, different ways in which we can learn. You know, we can learn a lot through eight week courses. We can learn a lot through retreats. We can learn a lot through home retreats. Wow. Gosh, the questions are, Liz, I'm seeing the questions are like a whole course there, aren't they? This is fantastic. I'm going to do uh, this. Yeah, actually, this one I, I can answer really very quickly, but it's more referring you to something else. How do you handle difficulty in your practice, like strong emotions? The teaching I really love on that is actually Tara Brack's presentation of RAIN. You know, to recognize, allow, investigate, um, and 
in in her presentation the n stands for nurture in other presentations it stands for not identifying with um, there isn't time today i think to go through those stages but if you are interested in that um, some colleagues at uh, the omc have turned rain into grain and also really emphasize the g at the beginning which is grounding in the body uh, as a, a way of um, being able to recognize what's happening but the rain or the grain teaching i think is such a skillful way of being with difficult uh, emotions mm. yes and kathy says you referred to wise and something words it seems important to me i forgot the second word yeah i i don't know it might have been kind or compassionate or friendly or responsive may well be a responsive uh, again if you're not familiar with that it's often a distinction we use in mindfulness teaching between a reaction that's automatic um, and um, you know to some degree unconscious and a response that can be more adaptive more helpful it was kind thank you Alison. just while you're looking at the uh, at the questions yes I'm interested in exploring the grain um practice that chris cullen did a podcast on it um uh, last year so if anybody's interested in that just look for chris's um podcast because he goes through the points of it that might be helpful to people so thanks for mentioning that thank you liz that's very helpful yes it was chris who added the g to rain for me i don't i i, I don't know where it developed but uh, yeah it's very helpful. Gosh. Um, so I'm just wondering, Liz, I might just try one more. Is that okay? I'm aware of the time. Um, I'm going to have a look at Judith's question. It's um, a longer question, so I'll have a look. But do you have any thoughts about how we can respond mindfully when we're in the company of people who are reacting very strongly? I'm sometimes tempted to point out that thoughts are not necessarily facts, drawing other approaches, but I stop myself because I don't want to evangelize and have people come to things in their own way. Yeah. Um, again, very helpful question, I think. Um, the thing I found most helpful is really to uh, to stay grounded and present ourselves. I think this is the most helpful thing uh, in those situations. What can happen is often teachings and words that are in themselves quite wise, um, again, speaking from my own experience here, <laughs> uh, it's almost like something else can co-op those words. Yeah, so we might find ourselves saying you know perhaps with an irritated tone of voice you do know that thoughts are not facts aren't you? <laughs> and when we do that the person will hear the irritated tone of voice rather than the helpful <laughs> teaching i think um so it is subtle and i think judith you've sort of answered your own question there but i mean it can be nice to ask people as well you know um you could say i I've actually found there's a few things I found really helpful there. Would would it be helpful to have some suggestions? Um, and they may say yes or no. And it also may be time and place. 
Yeah. If a person is in that moment in a place where they're very overwhelmed or anxious or angry, we know actually just our, our minds are not receptive in that place. You know, our perceptions have narrowed. So a lot of it may also be time. Um, you know, we're flooded by emotion in those places. We can't take in a new suggestion in that way. So, so yeah, staying present in ourselves, I think is very, very helpful. And yeah, finding the right time and making suggestions rather than imposing on others. I think these are helpful uh, starting places. But we're just about out of our time and Liz, I, I promised you I would finish by 7.56 and here we are. <laughs> so if it's okay, I'll, I'll hand over back to you. Is that all right? Great. Thank you, Jake. And I'd just like to say, you know, wow, you mentioned that word wow at the beginning and that state of wonder and what a wonder you are in the way that you've really sincerely shared some really personal reflections here and, and helps us to motivate us to keep practicing and it's always great to hear stories from other people to help us to really tune into those things that matter for us. And there's loads of comments coming through at the minute, Jake, saying um, how helpful they found your talk uh, today. So thank you so much from everybody and from all at the OMC for, for doing this, uh, this, uh, this session. Um, so we've got a few minutes left. Thanks again. Uh, we've got a few minutes left just to say, um, you know, we are offering uh, daily uh, practice, practices now. Uh, from 7 till 7.30 UK time at midweek. So please feel free to come along to those and you'll get the opportunity to do 30 minutes of practice. You might want to integrate that into your New Year's, um, I won't say resolutions, but these possibilities that Jake was talking about, you know, maybe setting a little bit of time aside to join us in this global community to practice together. Um, and please also keep your eyes out on the website. There are new courses coming along. There's lots of other things uh, for us to learn together. So please keep your eye on that. One thing in particular that I'd like to just uh, focus your uh, attention to is um, an article that was put on in, uh, in New Year, all about our charitable work. So that for, um, for those uh, donations that have come in for, our, uh, for the charity, to just have a look there to see what kinds of things that the money has been used for. Uh, first and foremost, uh, we've been able to have a researcher to help keep our uh, courses and trainings very close to the science and the feedback that we get. So we've been able to really focus that in. Also, some of the amazing work that's been made possible uh, due to your donations, kind, kindly donated in 2021. Um, and we've been able to also make mindfulness accessible to people who've lost income due to COVID, which has been something that um, uh, people are very proud of, the fact that we've been able to offer courses to people. And also training places to those people who are trying to impact uh, how to reach communities. So uh, in particular in the areas of uh, refugees and uh, LBGTQ communities and also those in the criminal justice. So uh, we've been able to offer uh, training places at a reduced rate because of the donations that come in. And making a, uh, mindfulness accessible uh, to as many people as possible has been something that's really been at the heart of uh, what the money has been used for. And that transition to online delivery that's been uh, so helpful. We're now operating in about 80 different countries, um, which is, you know, just amazing in terms of the reach. And that's been due to uh, some of the money as well that's been donated. 
And again, these daily uh, practices that are available uh, from the uh, Oxford Mindfulness Centre teachers here, you can come every day midweek and share in this global community. So we are really trying to build up the community. So thank you to those of you who've been able to donate. And if, if that is a possibility to you, then we will always be really grateful. And you can be really reassured that money is, you know, is turning around to make mindfulness as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. So um, please feel rest assured in that. So thank you. It's now uh, on the hour. So I'd like to say a sincere thanks again to Jake. What a beautiful, beautiful talk and reflection. Thank you so much for that.